correctly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. radiocom Welcome to Me and Steve Talk RPGs, a podcast where me and my friend Steve try and help you get the most out of your role-playing game experience. What is up, Gamer Nation, and welcome back to Me and Steve Talk RPGs. I'm here with my friend Steve. Greetings! And so before we get started on anything, let's shout out a D20 Radio Network podcast of the week. And that podcast is the newest podcast on the network. We want to welcome Werewolf the Podcast. Werewolf the Podcast is, well, it's a podcast all about Werewolf the Apocalypse, the role-playing game, which, you know, was one of the original members of the World of Darkness family. They talk about all kinds of things, be it, you know, system stuff. Uh, I think they do a little actual play. You know, they review various books. Like I said, it's a podcast about the werewolf role-playing game. So there you go. I personally haven't gotten a chance to listen to them yet, but it's actually on my list for something to do tomorrow. So uh, in any case, you can find them at www.httv, blah, blah, blah. Keep on the heathlands.podbean.com, or I'll put a link in the show notes. As a matter of fact, I've been doing a lot of door dashing recently, and that's going to be on my list of shows to listen to while door dashing. Because I would love to learn more about Werewolf. Even though we had a whole lecture and lesson on on the World of Darkness, I still think that's an interesting setting and, and world that I don't know that I don't know that I'm prepared to play it. Hey, I'll play anything at least once. I played a little bit of Werewolf back in the day, but I'll play in it and I'd love to run it, but I I don't know that I'm the person to run it because I hmm. Maybe we need to bring somebody else on and talk a little bit more about that. But eh, thoughts. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so we do have a topic for this week. Unlike, well, almost unlike last week. Um, <laughs> if we could have convinced GM Hooley, we would not have had a topic for last week. I'm telling you now. But the podcast topic for this week is dungeon crawls and, and sort of talking about old school versus new school mentalities. Yeah. Well, I, I thought, you know, it ties in a little bit to, you know, we were talking about adventures last week and look, I mean, dungeon crawls are the, the classic adventure. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. Right. Oh yeah. You know what? I, I want to get into this now to sort of break into it. Dungeon crawls are your classic RPG adventure. That's what almost everybody at some point, if you played, whether it be Dungeons and Dragons or other games, you've probably done a, a dungeon crawl at some point. And you may not have even realized you were doing a dungeon crawl because, in my opinion, there are dungeon crawls that exist outside of dungeons and you can disguise dungeon crawls. And if you really like running them, you can run outside of dungeons dungeon crawls. But that's maybe a little bit later on down the show line. Yeah, I was going to say, I have thoughts along those lines as well. So why don't we start, because I need to get my ideas together. Why don't we start by defining what a dungeon crawl is? Well, I mean, to me... Or loosely. <laughs> well, yeah. I, let's put it this way. The first thing that comes to mind is the classic, you enter some sort of usually underground tunnel and room structure slash system and proceed through it, finding things, fighting the bad guys, etc. 
often you have traps, puzzles, etc. I mean, I think that's yeah, I would say that's pretty much it. You're you're traversing an area while doing puzzles, traps and fighting creatures to gain loot and experience in that area. Yeah. I think that's the like short and sweet of it. What to you makes a good dungeon crawl? Because in my opinion, I'll start I'll start. Okay. Uh sorry. I'm a little scatterbrains right now. It's okay. In my opinion, what to me makes a good dungeon crawl would be any dungeon crawl that is challenging and doing its best not to be monotonous. I think the problem that I have a lot of times with dungeon crawls is that, you know, you do the same thing over and over and over again. You get really tired of it really fast. If I fight in a room once, the next room better not be a fight. It should be, you know, it should really be a puzzle or something. Because when it comes down to it, and in a in a good dungeon crawl, I would much rather fight, puzzle, traverse, rather than fight, 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 puzzle, 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 traverse, traverse, traverse. You know? Yeah. When it gets too repetitive, I get really bored with dungeon crawls. Well, I think, yeah, that's... And look, I, I'm by no means an expert, but I think you've hit on it, is that it it they do at least have a reputation for getting repetitive. and. Yeah, I think, like you said, the the key is to have variety, have unexpected things. And I don't know what to say those are because... Well, I think one of the biggest unexpected things in a dungeon crawl, and this is something that I don't typically think of, is any time I've done it myself, everybody has always enjoyed it. When I would run AD&D, which is built for dungeon crawls, I would always stick NPCs down in the dungeon for the players to talk to and find out lore, and find out what's going on, and keep the story progressing. And I think that's something that traditional dungeon crawls didn't have. They didn't have people to talk to. It was all you and your party, and they would just fight their way through. And that was, you know, that was indicative of the game and the game space at that time. And and I'm going to talk, we're going to talk about D&D, and, uh, you know, whatever, good, bad, ugly. But at the time, the game was really built to be a miniatures combat game. And so Dungeons and Dragons was built around the idea of going into dungeons and fighting dragons and mm-hmm. using your minis to do so. And I think, you know, fourth edition does it really well. AD&D can do minis combat really well, surprisingly. I was actually just rereading my AD&D books for something, um, you know, just working on something that I might do later on down the line. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Say no um, more, say no more. <laughs> Bob's your auntie, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, our British listeners are like, what in what in the world just happened? But anyways, no, I just, I was going back through AD&D stuff and I was like, wow, this is really indicative of like a miniatures game. It has rules like it's a miniatures game. And that's effectively what it was when it was, when it was designed is it was really designed to be one. And that's cool. Because it, it makes for a really fun game. And it makes those dungeon crawls. But I think the thing that you have to do is you really should you really should work towards your dungeon crawls being, you know, including more than just fight, 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 puzzle, puzzle, puzzle. Maybe throw some intrigue. Maybe throw some story. If you have a good background reason for me to go into the dungeon, oh, I'm down. I'm going. You know, uh, Huli talked about statistically you know, statistically men are likely to go save children 
okay, that's cool. You know, that's something that, you know, it's one of those things where like, hey, that was actually kind of a, you know, you could make that work with a dungeon crawl in some sort of way. You know what I mean? Like little Timmy went and wandered down the well. Can you go help him? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I've talked a lot. Why don't you talk some? <laughs> well, I think, you know, like you said, it's, and, and part of it is, I think the idea of a dungeon crawl has kind of gotten a bad rap in, in more recent years as gaming has developed or role-playing games have developed more into a storytelling medium, as opposed to, you know, like you were talking about in, in their origins, they were, so to speak, tactical simulations. And I mean, that leads to a bunch of conversations that I think we want to get into a little bit later, but I think, like you said, if you can figure out a way to work story and lore into a dungeon, be it, you know, finding items that you find old books or, you know, you, you find paintings or statues, carvings, things like that. And, and this is in, in your classic, you know, fantasy style dungeon crawl. Right. But I was thinking about it today and you mentioned this is that a dungeon crawl doesn't have to be in a dungeon. And like, if you think about it, like a classic heist is really a dungeon crawl. Yeah. I was actually just thinking about something and sort of spoilers for critical role season two, uh, the magic fun ball. Yeah. Uh, and that's a very traditional dungeon crawl, but the players were engaged the entire time. Yeah. And it kept an audience engaged for the entire, at, at least it kept me engaged. I don't know. It, other people might have been bored, but it kept me engaged the entire time they were in there. I wanted to know what was going on, what was happening, and things kept changing. And that was a very, like, that was a very traditional dungeon crawl, but with a twist. Yeah. And I think that's something that I have issue with, you know, the reprinting of old stories in Dungeons and Dragons, where we're taking these old dungeon crawls and we're not really changing them because they're classics. O okay, but you know, you kind of need to, because what was a classic doesn't mean it's good. Just because it was from the old times doesn't mean it was good. Well, but I think... <laughs> or it plays to a modern sensibility at all. I think that's that's the key point right there, is the modern sensibility. Because I actually recently heard an interview with, and I don't remember the individual's name, but they're from, I believe it's Necromancer Games, and they're doing some of these you know, rework reissues of some of these old classic dungeons for fifth edition. And the individual was talking about specifically some of Gary Gygax's designs. And it, it made me realize that there's been a major shift in how we play games and, and what we're after, because he was explaining that in, and forgive me, but I, I don't remember the, the specific one that he was working on, but in like temple of elemental evil, which is, often considered to be, you know, like kind of Gygax's, you know, big thing, right? Mm -hmm. There's almost no monsters. It's almost exclusively traps, puzzles, etc. But when Gary designed that, he was thinking in terms of this was designed to be a challenge for the player in the context that you had to play it on a meta level, you know, very carefully and, and make sure you ask the right questions and do the right things as a player, not so much as a character. And I think that's where we've seen a shift in the focus of, are we playing from a, a top-down, call it miniatures perspective, or a third-person video game, 
or are we playing through the eyes of our character? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's, that's where this kind of old school, new school, and, and that's where, you know, we're reworking some of these is difficult because they're designed from a completely different perspective. You know, it, it wasn't about how does Hogar the dwarf get through this dungeon? It was, how does Bob take Hogar through this dungeon? Yeah. It went from I am to I oversee. Well, actually, vice versa. I oversee to I am. Yeah. And and I don't think it's one of those deals where right. I'm not saying either one is right or either one is wrong. But when you try and shoehorn one into the other, it doesn't work as well. No. It's that first to third person omniscient switch. It's why metagaming, I think, is... is I think now why metagaming is so frowned upon because like AD and D days, there was metagaming like crazy. You know, if you could see something on the board, you saw it like it was in the map. You know mm. what I mean? But now it's like, and, and, you know, it was frowned upon back then too, but now it's even more so where it's like, oh, well, don't, don't metagame outside of, you know, don't, don't include like, and I don't have a problem. Like, I understand where both sides come from. No, I don't necessarily condone it all the time, but at the same time, I, I don't think it's a bad thing in certain circumstances. I think paranoia is a better game when you metagame that game. Like it becomes more silly, you know? It, yeah, no, I, I get, get, yeah. And I, I think I'm, I'm losing the force to the trees. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think you're hitting on it though, because it is, it's, a game is fun based on playing it the way it's designed to be played, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, and and so if you're playing a game or a, a, a dungeon that was designed to be played more in a, a third-person view, but you're playing it in first person, well, things aren't going to work as well. You know, right. like, yeah, and the other... The other thing that, and I don't know why this popped into my head when I was thinking about dungeon crawls, but the original Metal Gear Solid was very much a dungeon crawl. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Metal Gear Solid is a dungeon crawl. I stalled out on the helicopter fight, but... That's a lot of, not to get onto a tangent, that's a lot of his games are a dungeon crawl. <laughs> his stealth missions. Any stealth mission that you're going to play is going to be a, almost a dungeon crawl. Yeah. You know, sneak past the guard or fight the guard, or incapacitate the guard. Those are your options. Okay, well, the same applies for, like, most dungeon crawls. Yeah, sneak very much. Past the, sneak past the monster, or incapacitate the monster, or fight and kill the monster. You know, like... Well, to, to boil it down even further, it's overcome the obstacle onto the next obstacle, which is pretty much any story, really, but, you know, in, in the other thing is that, you know, dungeon crawls have a history of being very linear yeah uh that's something in my opinion that can be changed dungeon crawls are considered fairly linear but i think you could do a dungeon crawl that's more open i think you could be like go where you want to go you know pick a path what path do you want to go down that path is going to lead here that path is going to lead there and i think it's on going back to what cooley talked about last week it's on the GM side to like disguise how, you know, to, on a player side, you can disguise, you can, 
as a player, you feel like, oh, I have all these options. I can go whatever direction I want to go. And on the GM side, it's like, well, yeah, except all roads lead to Rome. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like dungeon crawls, I think, you know, they've gotten a bad rap for being very railroady, but they are in book form, so to speak. That is the dungeon is there. You go into it. That's what happens. Part of the bad rep comes from the way those modules are written. And I don't want to put blame on writers because, you know, we have friends that are writers and have written things and I don't know anything about that world. But I think some of it goes on how those modules are written in that you open a book when you read it, you read that book and you go, oh, well, this is telling me that I need to push my players in this direction. And I know that in, in Dungeons and Dragons, certain modules are written in that particular way where it's basically saying, hey, if your players don't want to go, you have to push them. And they're literal. What happens if your players don't want to walk in the in the direction you want them to go? Well, you do this. And yes, I understand railroading is a good thing and a bad thing all at the same time. If you ask nine players out of 10, they'll tell you they don't like railroading. But at the same time, if you do it secretively, they're not going to complain. Yeah. If you railroad a player, if you don't push, but give them the tracks, they like that. I, I like that as a player. I enjoy when I can see, oh, well, we can go all these different directions and I'm not feeling like I'm pushed in a particular direction, but the story's going to follow me. You know what I mean? And I don't know that the story's going to follow me. It's all, it's all in the veil in the, in the guise of what's hidden behind the curtain. <laughs> well, I think that's the point that, that Hooli was making, uh, referencing Robin Law's book, uh, Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering, where I think that's where he said that, you know, the key that, that was brought up there was that you don't tie, what do you want to say, your, your story points to a specific location. Right. And by that, I don't think he necessarily meant like in the context of a dungeon crawl, it doesn't mean don't put a dungeon there. It means don't be wed to having this thing they need to find out in this room. And unless they find that room, nothing happens. Right. It meant if you need them to find that room, put that room where they're going. Put the thing you need them to find in the way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Don't get hung up on where, just get hung up on the what. Like, Yeah. And that's something like, I, I really want to at some point dive into some of the gumshoe games. Because I know they have a, a kind of a unique um, design system as far as how to structure your story with clues and different types of things. I was listening to something today or yesterday, I don't remember which, about designing adventures for Fall of Delta Green, which is a gumshoe game. And uh, it, it was really interesting to hear, you know, it's saying, okay, you need, you know, you need this kind of clue and this kind of clue and that kind of clue. And so make sure you put them in front of the players, not so much give it to them, but put it where they're going to find it. Well, there's something that I remember learning in school about storytelling and writing stories, and I learned it very young. And I think it's something that we all sort of learned, but sometimes you just need to rem need to think about it more than like it's subconsciously baked in there. It's the five questions of storytelling. What, where, when, why, and how. Mm -hmm. and breaking down a dungeon crawl into what, where, when, why, and how, if you leave the when as, or if you leave the where as a question, and you leave that up to the players to decide where, 
But what? You should know what's coming. You should know when, roughly. You should know why it's there. You should know how it got there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And that helps give your world and your story that you're telling for the players character and and makes it feel justified. And and try and keep your whys and hows justified. Keep them grounded in the world and in the story that you're telling. You know, if your whys and hows come out of left field, well, your players are going to lose interest. And I've made that mistake. I made that mistake in a game that we played together or that I DM'd. I brought something out of left field and confused my players and was like, okay, I won't do that mistake again. I'm sorry. You know, just bad move on my end. But if you just, if you think about those five questions and you leave out the where, you leave the where up to the players. So you think about those four questions. It really will help you get everything in order. And especially for a dungeon crawl or for your story in general, you know, that's a lot of times when I sit down and write out my outlines. And I hadn't thought about this until I was sitting down and looking at my outline for the game that I'm going to run of Tales from the Loop. I had everything written out and I was like, I wrote this in, in programming logic. And then I realized, no, I didn't. I wrote this asking the four questions. Uh-huh. Sorry, did I did I lose you? No, no, no. Okay. But I realized that I, I was like, did I write this in like a programming logic, like an if then statement? And then I was like, no, I didn't. I wrote it in a weird like writer's logic. Well, yeah. Well, see, that's that's the thing. And I think that's where like I get frustrated with dungeon crawls where it just seems like you're wandering around and nothing happens. And that is the classic. You put the thing in a place and you're waiting for the players to find the place. And yeah, maybe they don't know the place is. Right. Again, that's where you have to move your goals, move your goalposts, make it easier for your players to find things. I'm sorry. You know, I, I, I very rarely, and I've talked about this when we talked about fudging dice, but I very rarely fudge dice in the, in the favor of myself. Almost always do it in favor of my players. And the reason for that is, is that I want my players to have a good time. I want myself to have a good time, but I want my players to have a good time and moving the goalposts help everybody have a good time. Yeah, yeah. Because your players get to see this thing that you prepped and you get to use the thing that you prepped and not just throw it out like, you know. Like yesterday's newspaper. Exactly. You don't just throw it out like it was nothing. You know, you put time and effort into a thing and your players walked right past it. Well, okay, they walked past it. Cool. Move it. Where are they headed to next? All right, it's there. And just justify the how it got there or why it is there in your own head. You know, that's something that you just have to justify. And and maybe if they're maybe if they're a talkative bunch, they could get to the bottom of why this thing is here. Or maybe if they're not, it doesn't matter. But that's another, you know, you gotta ask yourself those questions, you know, and then like I said, moving goalposts, moving creatures and puzzles and obstacles. Everything's an obstacle. You have to think about like creatures and puzzles, and especially in a dungeon crawl as obstacles. And, you know, your, your obstacles are what makes the, you know, your obstacles are a big part of it. Another big part of it is doing stuff to keep your players engaged. I think that's part of my issues with older dungeon crawls is they don't do anything to keep the players engaged. 
they hope that the combat is good enough to keep you engaged or that the puzzles are good enough to keep you engaged. And if you're bored with combat and you're bored with puzzles, then you have nothing. Well, and I think, you know, the puzzles in particular brings us back around to old school versus new school where you're playing from a third person or first person perspective, right? Right. Because, okay, just to reference it because it's for whatever reason on top of my head, Travis Willingham is significantly smarter than Grog was. <laughs> okay. So you put a puzzle in front of Travis and you put a puzzle in front of Grog, you're going to get different results. Oh yeah. Absolutely. You know, likewise, be it Caduceus and Talison. Mm-hmm. you know, Caduceus, from what I understand, did not have a very good intelligence score. Talison is very clearly quite an intelligent man. Yeah. But if you're playing from a third person perspective, the puzzle is a challenge to the player. And I think that's where puzzles can be really, really a weird thing because you obviously, you're probably going to know your players better than you know the characters. But how is your table playing? And are they going to try to solve the puzzle as their character or as the player? And you have to design accordingly. I think that is, and and not to cut you off, but I think in my mind, I just had a thought. I'm going to start doing this. That's a question to ask at a session zero. When you approach a puzzle, do you approach that puzzle as a player or do you approach the puzzle as your character? No, that's actually a very valid point. Like that is a question to ask every player at your table so you can plan accordingly. Yeah. I never thought about it, but you saying that and it just popped in my head. I'm like, I'm going to start asking that when I do, you know, session zeros. I'm going to be like, hey, look, here's the deal. When you walk up to a puzzle, do you look at it as a player and and try to solve it as the player first? And then or do you do you solve it as your character? And if you do solve it as your character, you know, that's if they don't solve it as their character, that's whatever. If they want to solve it as the player, that changes the type of puzzles that you're going to run. Right. Yeah. And it's yeah. I, I Like you said, I think that's a very valid thing to bring up at a session zero because it really is very important to how you approach it in in game. Mm-hmm. Boy, that was a deep thought, huh? <laughs> it got a lot. Like you were saying it, my brain was putting numbers together and I'm like, that is, that's deep. Like that's a, that's a heck of a thing. Like you were saying it and my brain was like, well, but wait, what happens? Which, yeah. Well, that strikes too, to, you know, the, the, like you said, the meta versus character and yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's a right answer, but I think it, it is something that maybe, you know, is worth having a discussion with your, your table about because, you know, it, like, okay, for example, I have worked around electricity for a long time in my real life work, right? Mm-hmm. So if you put something that's some sort of circuit logic puzzle in front of me, that section of my brain turns on and goes after it. Well, that's fine, but if I'm playing a character that's a dentist and the only thing he knows about electricity is that when he turns on the switch, the light comes on, you know, that's, that's not a very in-character solvable puzzle. But if we're, as a table, approaching it as the player solving the puzzle, that's a, you know, like if you're running the game, you can go, yeah, well, I'll put this in there and Steve will figure it out. Yeah. But, you know, my character Sam might not. Well... And it goes to what type of table do you run? What what type of table are the players that you have? 
are they interested in being super role play? Okay, cool. Then more than likely they're going to want to solve puzzles as their character. Or are they interested in keeping themselves entertained? And if that's the case, then giving a table a puzzle that is more of a meta puzzle than a character puzzle is going to keep them entertained. Yeah. And it also goes to, you know, do your players, do you as a player, do you build characters that in some ways mirror yourself? Are you building characters that are an exploration of something completely not what you are? You know, the the character that I'm playing in the Genesis game that you and I are playing is very much kind of, what do you want to say, an alternate version of myself in that he's kind of a gearhead junk hound that likes to put weird stuff together. I mean, you and me both, but like, I've described that character as, as what, Dean Martin mixed with Jerry Lewis? Like... Well, my thought was kind of Cooter mixed with Troy Landry, but... Oh, no, no, my character. Oh, uh, yours? Cole. Yeah. Yeah. I've described Cole as, like, Dean Martin mixed with Jerry Lewis. Like, it's this suave goofball. Like... Yeah. No, and, and... Right. But, like, okay, in presenting challenges to your character, they aren't going to be the same challenge. You aren't... Your character wouldn't approach things the same way that you do. No. I, I'm very logical and... And like, I'm, I'm very impulsive, but that's just part of who I am. But I'm also very logical about what I do. Everything I do impulsively has a, some kind of logic behind it. Now, Cole is impulsive. He just flies off the handle for no good reason. Like, we'll just jump to conclusions because there's, you know, there was a good bridge there, but we didn't need that. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting. And I like playing characters that are me, but me differently. Yeah. And that's the kind of player I am. Now, I'm not saying that I haven't played characters that aren't me at all. I've played a couple characters that are just, you know, not my type of personality, but it's it's usually foreign to me. It's a little bit off-putting. It, you know, it's not off-putting in a bad way, but it's a little bit like, hmm, I don't know that, I, I not that I hate it, but I don't know that I really care for this. Yeah. And I think this... I don't know if we're tangenting out here. I know this was in kind of my original concept, but I think this also pushes into the concept of, you know, is, is your game or is your, you know, GMing, whatever, is it adversarial or is it co-op? Because in this kind of old school, if you will, Gygaxian model of dungeon design, it is in a lot of ways, the GM versus the players in that you're trying to put challenges there for the players to solve. Yeah. And if that's the game that you signed up for, that's great. That's fine. That's, that's what you signed up for. That's what you came expecting. That's what you theoretically anyway would have wanted. But if you came in expecting to look at it in a more first person view, you know, through your character's eyes, that's going to be really, really rough. And it's going to feel like the GM's out to get you. Yeah. Adversarial GMing is something that I've only done it a handful of times and I would like to do it less or more. I don't know. I, I want to play paranoia, which means that I need to be more adversarial as a GM, but, um, but that's baked into the concept. Yeah. That's, you know, that, that comes with the game in a game that it's not necessarily so baked into the concept. Adversarial GMing is a little bit off putting in my opinion, but that's, it's all personal preference. Some people like it to be the us versus them fight. 
where it's like, oh, the GM's going to throw obstacles my way and I'm just going to overcome them or my character's just going to overcome them. You know, it's the it's the roller coaster lot. It's the, you know, do you prefer it to be real life? Because real life throws obstacles your way all the time. And, you know, you're constantly having to overcome them, whether whether you like it or not. And, you know, adversarial GMing is something that I've done a little bit of when absolutely necessary as a way to keep a party in check, we'll say, where, you know, say a party is so to go back quite a ways, say a party's getting into a power spiral. That's a point at which you're going to start getting into a little bit of adversarial GMing to try and stop that power spiral. That's just something that happens. Yeah. And I've done cooperative GMing where I've, you know, basically worked with the players or, or been a neutral party and essentially a story. Like, I say neutral party, but that's not a hundred percent active. You're a hundred percent accurate. You're still throwing obstacles their way, obstacles their way, but you're not actively, you're not actively adding difficulties. You're just sort of this is the story and this is the direction that it's taking. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes when I GM, I will. Uh, sometimes when I GM, my brain goes in weird directions. So I mean, in life, I go in weird directions, but. Sometimes when I GM, I will just put myself into essentially an autopilot mode where I have the story I'm telling. I, I know, you know, roughly what's going to happen. I know roughly when it's going to happen. And I know my players are probably going to get there at some point or they're going to go their own way. And if they go their own way, then, you know, sort of autopilot mode ends. But I just know that, you know, hey, we're going here. We're going there. I listen to what my players are telling me. And when we go in that direction, and that's where I sort of come up with the like cooperative GMing is listening to your players and going in the direction that the players are going. And sometimes adversarial GMing is going in, is pushing in the exact opposite direction via force inside the game. Never, I, I, I say almost with certainty, and I don't say many things with certainty, but almost with certainty, never push in a direction without good justification in game out of game never push in a direction any direction whether left right forward backwards none let your players do that in game you can push them in a direction with justification yeah i mean i think i wouldn't say 100 percent because sometimes depending on it, it specifically with maybe more investigation based games you might need to you know Sometimes people will get a hold of an idea and be dead set that that's what's going on. And like, look, we only got, you know, four hours to play. You've just spent two hours chasing this. You're going the wrong direction. And you try to communicate that by nudging them. But sometimes they don't get it. You need to not to disagree with you completely, but I think then you need to bring in an in-game nudge. And not just a nudge, but an in-game somebody that knows what's going on and come in and go, you're going in the wrong direction. Stop looking here. You need to look over here. Whether that be an NPC or a piece of, you know, that's where on the fly GMing, you just sort of make a piece of something that says not outright where you want them to look, maybe, but pushes them way harder towards where you want them to look. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think that that should be your first recourse. But yeah, in any case, I mean, it, we're not, it, we have similar ideas, but we have different opinions and that's 
the way yeah. life works. Yeah. Do you have any more on adversarial GMing? I don't think so. I mean, I think the thing is, is that it's not necessarily bad, but it has a bad rap because if it's not what you signed up for, it's not fun. And that's, yeah. I think, the best way to say it. Yeah. And that's hard to, I, 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 I was going to say, maybe try again, push that towards a, push that towards a session zero. But if you're not aware of that, like as a GM, some GMs just aren't aware that they're being adversarial. They just have gotten in their way and that's how they GM and whatever. I think that's one of those where you have to, as a player, play it by ear and, and maybe say, you know, if a game isn't cutting it for you, if I, I, I don't mean to be rude, but if, if, if you're playing with your friends and you don't like how your friend is, is running the game, you should feel comfortable enough to say, Hey man, with all due respect, I don't care for this right now. I'm going to pass and move on. I said, but, but you know, maybe down the road we can play something else together. Yeah. Well, no, I think it, it does. It is something I think that, that should be brought up in session zero, but I think it's, it's hard to quantify though. It is hard to quantify. And the other thing is, is I think you and I spend a lot of time thinking about RPGs and playing them and, and all this, right? Not everybody does. Some people just show up on Saturday night and bring their dice. And so, you know, I think that's in some ways, maybe some of what we try to push people towards with the show is, is to be more self-aware as a gamer so that you can communicate effectively to the people you're playing with, be it when you're playing, when you're GMing, whatever, so that you can all figure out better how to make something that's more enjoyable for everybody. Right. Right. No, I, I completely agree. I, I think it's, it's a little bit, um, our show is not to delve into this, but as, as you're aware, as I'm aware, our show is not for everyone. You know, there are people that casually play RPGs that don't want to listen to our show because we're a little bit too in depth for them, which we try to like, we try to cater towards everybody, but we can't, you know, we can't please everyone. But at the same time, you know, if you have a GM that's like, man, I, I, you know, I wish I could get better. I wish I could do something and, and you listen to us or, you know, here's a better one for you. If you have an idea that you want to hear us talk about and you have something that you're like, oh man, those guys haven't talked about this. And I, I want to know an answer to how they would do this or how they would do that. Come in our discord, shoot us a message, message our Facebook, message our uh, Twitter. Um, tweet at us, you know, there are easy ways to get a hold of us to get that as a show topic. And you'd be surprised nine times out of 10, as long as everything's in order, if you message us and go, Hey, can you guys talk about this? We're going to try our best in it. You know, it, sometimes it's not always the next episode, but it will definitely get talked about. Yeah. I mean, and well, and to be quite frank, I mean, we have a list of stuff that, okay, we want to talk about this or whatever, but half the time, you know, at, at most we figure out what we're going to talk about six, seven hours in advance. Day of. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. When did you, you messaged me today at 11.02 AM. It is now 9.22 PM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we, you know, in a lot of cases, yeah, we'd, we'd like to have maybe, you know, a couple shows in the can. So it might be a couple weeks before we could get to it, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that, you know, and even if nothing else, if you bring it up on the Discord or, you know, message one of us, whatever, I mean, 
I don't know. I'm not going to speak for you, Steve, but I'll happily have a conversation with pretty much anybody about gaming topics. Hey, let me tell you a secret. Tuesday nights at about 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I'll be in our Discord and general chat. <laughs> That's becoming a constant thing is that Tuesday nights I go into our general chat and I'm there to talk about either the show, gaming topics, anything you want to talk about, come hit me up. I will talk about just about anything. And and that is legitimate. You know, in our Discord, come in. You see our general chat channel. If it's about seven o'clock, I'll be in there. I'm usually in there for roughly an hour. I might be in there longer. I might not. You know, it depends on who shows up for the evening. But seven o'clock, Tuesday evening, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, general chat in our Discord. And that's me and Steve Talk RPGs Discord. Me and Steve RPGs Discord, sorry. And as always, that's in the show notes. You can find our links for that. Facebook, Discord, uh, Twitter. I, say, I know the link for the Discord is, I believe it's pinned to the, to the top of the Twitter. Yeah, it's also pinned to the top of the Twitter, and I need to update our Facebook, but we don't use Facebook very often. But it doesn't mean that if you message our Facebook, I'm not going to respond. It just means that we don't post on Facebook very often. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you could actually look to, um, I think both of us follow reasonably closely the uh, D20 Network Facebook group. Yep. Go in there and ask us questions. If you're in the Discord in the D20 Radio Network, you know, there are easy ways to get a hold of us. We're not yes. hard people to get a hold of. Yeah. You can even email us. There's a link for that in the show notes, too. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, me and Steve RPGs at gmail.com or whatever it is. <laughs> I might have rattled it off, right? Um, you'll hear my voice say it again later if you listen at the end. Yep. Yeah, that's me and Steve RPG at gmail.com. But, you know, as always, yeah, if you have questions, just reach out. We're here. We're here to answer your questions. We're here to answer each other's questions. Like <laughs> that too. Yeah. Um, and talk about silly things every now and then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Absolutely. You know, um, heck, you heard us last week, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, if you're not part of our Discord, you didn't get to see the bloopers that got posted in our Discord of last week. Well, outtakes, I guess you should say, not bloopers. Yeah, yeah, because there's, what, about 15, 20 minutes of conversation before we actually started recording the show proper that was yeah. just too amusing to... I think you said 45 minutes in the post, but I'm not sure. Mm, I think it's about 25 okay. total, but I don't remember. Yeah, whatever. Um, yeah. So I think it's time we move on to our next favorite thing. What's our next favorite thing, Steve? The next favorite thing is Game of the Week. Woohoo! Game of the Week! Game of the Week! Game of the Week! You want to go? I'll go. I can go. Go. I never go first. All right. I have a game called NeuroCity. Ooh, hang on. N-E-U-R-O-C-I-T-Y. It'll have a green screaming face. Okay, there it is. All right. I'll just read you the, the tagline. Narrow City is a subterranean city complex crowned by a glitched digital sun, ruled over by an ever-watchful supercomputer named Isaac, a closed society on the brink of collapse, suffering an involution from digital to analog technology due to the scarcity of materials and constant recycling of components. This seems cool man it is a how did they describe it feels very dystopian but like in a entertaining sort of way yeah it's like um i think they described it as like a digital noir in some some place here like 
somebody there's a quote down towards the bottom neuro city welcomes you to a prison where living is mandatory uh, <laughs> it, it's so like i stumbled across it it's currently six bucks for the pdf i started looking into it it is so cool and cyberpunk and dystopian like 19 it's it's retro futurism but in reverse like it's starting out in the future and going backwards because of having to recycle technology it's it's really really cool man it looks really really cool i like that they they call one of their one of the things that you could become is called a trancer which reminds me of a pretty awesome 80s movie called trancers which is all about these psychics uh that can travel through time it's a really cool movie you know it's just a really neat neo-noir type story yeah i like it i like it tech noir that's what they were calling it funded in kickstarter 120 pages of pure tech noir yeah no it looks it looks pretty darn cool yeah yeah all right so is that yours that's mine all right well i have one that's i would guess maybe kind of adjacent to that um it's a game called age of steel and it's well again Read the the beginning of the thing. Age of Steel is a diesel punk role playing game set in the world of Neeries, I guess. A world not unlike our own in the first few decades of the 20th century. Neeries has just emerged from its first global conflict, the Great War, in which hundreds of thousands of men and women died in the mud and horrors of the trenches. Since technology has taken a slightly different route to our own world, personal mecha powered by diesel engines are used for numerous applications from war to common labor, huge airships uh bipedal automata you know so it's it's a very well it's diesel punk yeah i like diesel punk but uh yeah and this one i mean i'll say this it looks like it's it's just from my experience with diesel punk it looks like it's later diesel punk this is like 20s yeah well that's what it says yeah this is 20s which is later than i'm used to seeing with diesel punk usually diesel punk is like early 1800s or early 1900s i should say which I mean, the 20s are the early 1900s, but I mean, like, late 1800s. Yeah. Also kind of has a little bit of a noir feel to it, especially from, like, the cover art. Yeah. But it's a, it's a 123-page RPG designed to capture the feel of pulp adventures such as Indiana Jones or The Rocketeer. I like it. I like <laughs> The Rocketeer. I just watched that movie again the other day. But I don't know what possessed me. I was sitting at home, and I was like, oh, man, you know what's on Disney Plus? The Rocketeer. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it's a D- D6-based system. Well, it looks like it has sort of a meta-currency called Moxie Points, which I think is kind of cool and thematic. Um, looks like it has rules for crafting weapons, armor, and vehicles. And, uh, yeah, it, it looks entertaining. Yeah, it looks cool. And it's 11 bucks. So that's mine, Age of Steel. And, uh, again, just... To remind everybody, if you're looking for these games and maybe you don't remember exactly what we said it was or you can't, you know, we didn't say it clear enough for you to find, links to all these on DriveThru in the show notes, or if they're not something you can find on DriveThru, try to put some sort of link to somewhere you can find it or at least, you know, see what the cover looks like, et cetera. Um, yeah. If it's something that's old, not a print, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And with that, I do want to thank you for listening. And I think we've reached the end of our episode. And I want to remind you to be kind and be kind to one another and get out there and play some RPGs. Take care, y'all. 
Intro and outro music by the band 12 Noon. You can email us at meandsteverpg at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and RPGs. Find us on Facebook at Me and Steve RPG Podcast. On Discord at Me and Steve RPGs. And as always, all of these links are in the show notes. Thank you and be kind to one another. Cigar. Cigar, 20 bucks, dog. You got to go down the street to the store and buy that. <laughs> he just was like, but I'm not recording that channel. <laughs> Don't yell at me. I didn't do it. <laughs> Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'll stop with my <laughs> joke. Oh, I'm sorry. I couldn't brain for whatever reason. Every time I would start on a topic, my brain would just decide it was like, no, stop. Try again. Yeah, it happens, man.